As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Welcome back to the programme that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we dive into this week's show, I want to remind you about our book competition. To be in with a chance to win a copy of Alistair McGrath's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. But now for today's show. This is the 11th episode in our series on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis. And our focus here is on the creation of Narnia. Alistair, you say in your book that Narnia is an imaginative, not an imaginary world. What do you mean by that? Imaginary really means something that you've deliberately invented. You know, you can invent an imaginary friend. But Lewis is saying Narnia is imaginative. What I mean by that is it arises naturally and connects with the imagination. In other words, although uh, this is something that I have created, I have not created it arbitrarily, it seems to come about naturally. And Lewis has some very important passages in his works where he talks about, in effect, the imagination having its own rules, having its own framework. And for Lewis, in effect, the imagination, if you like, is a, is a, a kind of playground in which you can explore ideas at a deeper and richer level. So if you like, um, Narnia is a kind of imaginative playground where Lewis is wrestling with ideas. If you like, it's a kind of almost like a, a mental experiment, a mental um, uh, drama in which he is opening up some deep questions and exploring them in a way which in effect connects up with our ability to picture these particular situations emerging. So it makes it extremely easy to read and above all, extremely easy to connect up with them. So where do you think this world came from? What was the inspiration behind the Narnia Chronicles, do you think? Well, Lewis tells us that inspiration was his childhood, where in effect he was in an old house packed full of books and found these books to be an imaginative gateway. So if you like, Lewis is reconnecting with an insight that really goes back to his own childhood and in fact never went away because um, Lewis in fact kept coming back to the importance of the imagination, contrasting its richness with the, the relative um, impoverishment that you find when looking at purely rational arguments. So Lewis, I think, basically was um, very, very clear that the imagination is something that gives us access to deep realities at a much deeper level than you can ever do using rational argumentation. Now, Lewis had very little contact with children, I suppose, up until he married Joy Davidman, from what we know. 
But why? So why did he decide to write a children's story? Was it, as you say, because of his own childhood? I mean, was he expecting it to be read by children? Well, that's a good question. I think Lewis was expecting this to be read by children. In one sense, of course, his childhood was important because he was casting his mind back and saying, well, look, I really enjoyed reading, well, Squirrel Nutkin, that kind of thing. And um, the religious books he read as a child clearly did not have any meaningful impact on them at all. And my guess is that his feeling would have been something like this. I wish somebody had written a book about Christianity in that kind of imaginative style, because then I would have devoured it. Maybe I could do the same. But then there's another thing which we just need to bear in mind, which is, of course, um, the Second World War. Because um, during the Second World War, um, many children were evacuated from London because of the risk of bombing. And some came to stay with Lewis in Headington and Oxford. And as far as we can gather... They entertained these children by telling stories. So it may well be that it was a later reinforcement of Lewis's earlier insight about the importance of telling stories and connecting up with the imagination. But I think Lewis, in effect, was taking a new step because he was deliberately writing a book for children, or at least ostensibly for children. I mean, uh, I first read The College of Narnia as an adult. I was dying 22 at the time. And actually, it spoke to me very, very well. And that's because there's a depth to it, which means you can read as a child, read as an adult, and you see different things. But certainly, it was it was a dangerous step for Lewis to take. But I think we have to say he did it really rather well. Now, unlike a lot of children's stories, there isn't the kind of obvious goodies and baddies necessarily in Narnia, is there? Unlike, for instance, Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, the children in the Narnia Chronicles aren't told who is good and who is bad, are they? No, they're not. I think that's a very important point to make because for Lewis, um, you step into a world and you have to work out who is good and who is not good rather than this formulaic... um, pattern whereby you're told who's good and who's bad. No, no. Um, if you think about when the children first go into Narn in the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, it is not clear who is to be trusted and who is not to be trusted. They have to find out. And for Lewis, this is a very powerful metaphor of finding our way in the world. We have to make judgments. This is good. This is not good. And it's all about evaluating evidence. It's all about trying to work out who you really are, where you're really meant to be, and who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, and of course, therefore, who you follow. And that, that's remarkable insight, because certainly most children's books are rather rather simplistic. Here are the good guys, here are the bad guys, the good guys win, yay. But with Lewis, no, no, it's much more who are the good guys, um, and trying to work that out. And that's one of the most distinctive features of Narnia. It treats children with intense sophistication. They are agents of discernment who can figure out what's going on and who the right guys are. And do you think it matters which order we read the Narnia Chronicles in? I mean, I know we've done a whole series on the Narnia Chronicles and we definitely mentioned it then, but is it important which order we read those chronicles in, do you think? I think some of them do stand out as being written at a definite place. For me, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe has to be the first book you read. Even though I know The Magician's Nephew talks about an earlier period, but if you read The Magician's Nephew and then read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, that wonderful, slow disclosure of Narnia, which is such a hallmark of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, actually becomes pointless because you already know exactly what Narnia is. 
And in many ways, I think what Lewis wants to do is to read the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and then go back and read The Magician's Nephew, because you then know, he, here's what Narnia is. How did it come to be like that? Well, you go back to Magician's Nephew, and of course, you have to read The Last Battle uh, right at the end. But actually, in between, I'm not sure if it makes all that much difference, I have to say. But my, my personal advice, which of course is not um, binding on anyone, is start with the line which is in the wardrobe and end the last battle and a bit of flexibility in between. So would you have any opinion about when you go back and read the kind of prequel, The Magician's Nephew? Would you read The Lion of the Witch Wardrobe, go back and then jump into the next ones? Or would you sort of go on a few and then go back? I, I personally find that having read The Lion of the Witch in the Wardrobe, I'm left with two questions. What happens next? And also, how did all this happen? So, you know, you've got two, two ways you can go. And I chose to go back to The Magician's Nephew. But, you know, you could go on and just keep going through the series and then read Magician's Nephew at some other point. But it just, on balance, I think I prefer to read Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe and then Magician's Nephew and then jump in uh, later in the series, okay? We've talked a little bit about the children there and the kind of importance that Lewis gave to them. Obviously, all of the children take sort of key roles in each of the books. But another important role that is um, seen throughout the Narnia Chronicles is animals. So why did animals play such an important role in the Narnia Chronicles, do you think? Well, Lewis was very hostile to vivisection and really felt animals had to be treated seriously as conscious um, conscious creatures. And therefore, in effect, um, portraying animals as having intelligence and agency came very naturally to Lewis as it did, of course, to many of the writers who Lewis regarded with great um, admiration. Um, so I think you can say Lewis really is um, trying to get across the idea we do need to take animals more seriously. The emphasis on children is also, I think, very important. It's a bit like Tolkien and Hobbits. Tolkien is really saying, look, um, the very small people actually make a very big difference. And Lewis is really taking children with great um, great seriousness, saying children may seem insignificant to adults, but actually they have their own worlds, they're making decisions, they're trying to figure out how to be good people. Let's honour that, and let's, in effect, ask how we can learn from how children respond to a complicated world and make decisions about who they're meant to be and how they bring about a better world. C.S. Lewis features quite a lot of different animals throughout the series. Do you think it's significant um, which animals he uses at which point, do you think? I think you, you can give all kinds of reasons. I mean, one, one lingering presence, of course, throughout is Aslan. And that's a very, very significant figure for Lewis. But um, there are other animals which um, play significant roles. Jewel the Unicorn, I think, is a very good example of an animal who has not simply an, an intelligent view of the world, but a deep sense of, well, now I see what everything's really all about. This is my real homeland, even though I didn't know it. Sort of, if you like, spiritual discernment. So I think Lewis is really trying to, in effect, make it easier for his readers to kind of follow through the lines of thought. And a key point is they are not being told what is right by people who are older and wiser than they are. It's all about children and animals discovering something which we can then discover as well and again it's a key theme in Lewis's understanding of the nature of literature it's about enabling us to discover something really important that's certainly a theme throughout the Chronicles of Narnia and obviously one of the 
things that Lewis wanted to get out of the Narnia Chronicles was for people to enjoy it. But was there anything else that he hoped that the readers would sort of get from reading his books? Well, enjoyment is a very, very important theme for Lewis. I mean, for Lewis, really, the key criterion about whether a book works or not is whether it creates this deep sense of enjoyment on the part of his readers. And I think that that's a very important point in actually understanding why Lewis remains such a popular writer even to this day. But I think what Lewis is really doing here is is trying to um, trying to help us see that um, a story is able to disclose something really significant about who we are and why we matter, and therefore, if you enjoy it, it makes the it makes what you discover much more um, real, and also it abides within you. It sticks with you. It stays with you. So you take it away, even though you finish the book. And do you think Lewis saw these books as religious allegories, or is that perhaps not the right word to use? I don't think the word allegory is quite right. I mean, I mean, Lewis's first book, um, Pilgrim's Regress, is clearly an allegory. Everything in that represents something else. I think the line which in the wardrobe in particular, but the Chronicles of Narnia in general, is very much about, in effect, using figures to try and get across the idea of um, ideas that are waiting to discover. In other words, um, you're not meant to say, oh, look, Mr. Beaver represents this. You're just saying, look, this is, a, this is a real character who's thinking, who's helping me to think, who is, in effect, if you like, embodying his own wisdom. So I personally think it, you, you read this as a story, you enjoy it, and you let the characters speak to you out of their own particular location within Narnia. So I suppose there's some senses in which actually something might might mean one thing to you and one thing to me. And actually, that was probably part of Lewis's intention that actually it wouldn't, you know, he's not telling you what to think. He's letting you discover it for yourselves, like the characters. Well, Lewis is not a didactic writer saying this is what you will think and giving you a very mechanical formulaic way of thinking. He's in effect inviting you to explore and engage. Let these characters in Narnia, in effect, trigger off lines of thought for you. And in many ways, the whole thing about a story is we, we assimilate this, we appropriate, and as we think about it, actually we find ourselves re rethinking things in our own distinct way. And one of the reasons why Lewis likes telling stories so much is that each story speaks to a reader in a different way. So Lewis is able to avoid this kind of rather simplistic surface level uh, way of, of explaining Christianity by, in fact, letting you step into a story, appreciate it, and see where it takes you. Do you think there's a sense in which the Narnia Chronicles are something of an imaginative counterpart to mere Christianity? I do. I think that it's significant that um, both these works were being kind of thought about and written about at the same time. Obviously, the Chronicles of Narnia were quite extended in terms of the times of writing. And Mere Christianity actually really is a reworking of the um, BBC talks in the 1940s. Intellectually, they are exploring very similar ideas. But one is really presented as a kind of intellectual argument. Another is presented as a series of stories. So they are quite different. And I personally would say that they both have um, a very significant role to play. But they are different. And, and actually... You know, there's a certain sense in which someone might start with this and then move to the other, but for some people it'll be the other way around. It just shows how Lewis is able to engage the imagination and the reason. And there are very few writers who I think can do that quite as well as he does. 
Why do you think story was so powerful for Lewis? Was it because it played such an important part in his own conversion? Well, it did play a significant role in his own conversion. I think that is true. But Lewis was a literary scholar who, in effect, knew the capacity of stories to capture the imagination. And it may well be that he and J.R. Tolkien had conversations about this. I mean, Tolkien actually is a bit more sophisticated than Lewis here, and that Tolkien has clearly read at least some works of anthropology, which in effect make it very, very clear how human beings use stories, depend on stories. And that certainly seems to be an, an influence on Tolkien's way of writing. But certainly what I can say is that uh, if you read contemporary cultural anthropology, you will see many references to the importance of narratives as a way of conveying meaning, uh, conveying memories, and above all, organizing our personal worlds. And those themes are all there in Lewis. And the story of Aslan, in particular in Line, which in the Wardrobe and Beyond, is very much presented as this is a way of making sense of everything. So obviously the Narnia Chronicles still continue to be incredibly popular among children today. Why is that? Why do you think they've stood the test of time in a way that actually a lot of books written at the time wouldn't have done? It, it's hard to know. There may be an intergenerational factor here whereby old people recommend this to their children or indeed to their grandchildren. But I think one of the things simply is that the, the they are so readable. I mean, that's point you just can't get away from. You you read the line which in the wardrobe and the power of a narrative and Lewis's uh, rich and very accessible prose kind of it draws you in. So I think we have a number of things coming together. A good story that is well told, that has depth and also seems to connect up with deep human deep human thoughts about the importance of being significant, making a difference, making sense of things. All of those themes are there. And maybe they're there in other works as well. But Lewis seems to have kind of way bubbled up to the top here. Well, we're going to carry on talking about Narnia in the next episode. But just as we finish, um, this might be like asking you to tell me your favourite child, Alistair. But do you have a favourite Chronicles of Narnia book? Well, I'm afraid it is The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Um, <laughs> because in my view, it is the best. When I read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, I sometimes think, actually, you could stop at the end of that and still be very, very satisfied. Lewis gave us much more, and I'm very pleased about that. But actually, it's one of those um, remarkable books which actually leaves you kind of a, a, in either two positions. One is saying, well, that, that's really good. Or you might end up like me saying, well, I want to know what happened next. And also, how, how did this happen? How did this come about? So you, you want to go back and forward. But it's a remarkable book. But everyone listening to this podcast will say, well, actually, we have our own favourite. And I'm sure you'll be able to give very good reasons for that. The important thing is it's a very rich series. And everyone, I think, is able to find one of its books, which really makes particular sense to them. Alistair, that's, I'm afraid, all we've got time for today. But thank you so much for joining us. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson, and Professor Alistair McGrath. And don't forget, we're giving you the opportunity to get a free copy of Alistair's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life. To be in with a chance to win, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. That's premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book. Thank you for listening and see you next time where we'll be hearing more from Alistair on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm.